Well, hello. This is the Keat Shelley Twitter, the Twitter account of the Keat Shelley House in Rome, the, the house in which the poet John Keats died in 1821, now a museum in memory of the second generation romantic poets uh, and writers to Percy Shelley, Lord Byron, Mary Shelley, and of course to John Keats. And I'm sitting in the non-Catholic cemetery, sometimes known as the Protestant cemetery in the south of Rome, overlooked by a gigantic pyramid, which is currently under wraps, being renovated. I've walked through a busy market. There are lots of birds around me and cats crawling through the undergrowth. And I'm sitting in front of the grave of John Keats on a bench that rather extraordinarily has a little Keats quote. I, in the very temple of delight, veiled melancholy, has a sovereign shrine. Next door, the grave of his friend Joseph Seven, who accompanied him to Rome and comforted him on on his deathbed in his final hours, minutes and seconds. And it's an incredibly moving place to be. An oddly Keatsian space, I think. Incredibly still, uh, except for the birds and the cats and the undergrowth. There are enormous amounts of trees and plants, and although it's December, they're still incredibly green. And this seems to be something that's picked up by almost everyone that has visited and memorialised this place. Uh, Christina Rossetti mentions it in, in her sonnet on Keats's grave, as does Oscar Wilde, who famously prostrated himself um, over, the, uh, over the plot of land uh, when he visited, not long after uh, the headstone had gone up. And at the same time, it feels a very urban space. We're overlooked by a house with satellite dishes, and there's the sound of traffic, sirens, people shouting... I'm just outside the walls, and it feels sort of poised in that particularly Keatsian way between two points, suspended, perhaps, you might say. It's rather odd to be sitting this close to Keats, um, beside his remains. It's a word that's often applied to someone's poetic works. I think Lord Houghton's first biography and compilation of Keats's work used the, the word remains. And I doubt there's been a, a writer that has thought about their, the idea of their remains more than John Keats, with, certainly not with greater intensity. And that, that's another way of saying, has there been a writer that has considered their own death and pondered their own death with, with the same kind of intensity as, as Keats? And Keats and death is a rather intriguing, slippery subject, um, perhaps because he died so young and in such tragic circumstances and was denied so much in his life, love, happiness, artistic fame, at a time where the thought of people making a pilgrimage to Rome to visit his grave would be ridiculous. And in fact here, when he was buried, there were only, I think, 30 other graves and I imagine they all got received more traffic than Keats's. And I think probably the sense also that being in Rome so far from those that he loved except for, for Seven and his courageous uh, tending to him he's a writer whose, whose death I think has dominated and shaped the way that we, we think of him and, then, and the way that perhaps we approach the work The grave itself is one of the more intriguing memorials to, a, to an artist that I can think of, there are there's an image of a, of a lyre, um, which is picked up by the 
palette and paintbrushes on Severn's grave. Um, he was a, a painter to, to Keats's poet. But whereas Severn's grave proclaims his name and also his relationship with Keats, there's no such announcement of John Keats's name on his. And the words just read, This grave contains all that was mortal of a young English poet who on his deathbed, in the bitterness of his heart at the malicious power of his enemies, desired these words to be engraven on his tombstone. Here lies one whose name was writ in water. February the 24th, 1821. And you see people come here, stand in front of it, a couple have just come, an English couple have just come, rather disgruntled, they seem to be having some form of marital disagreement. Um, and they actually watered the grave, which seems entirely in keeping with Keats's final line. Uh, another Italian couple seemed rather more baffled by what was in front of them, and I think were looking it up on their, their smartphones to see who these people actually were. And I think what the headstone in that way engages with is the different responses that one has to John Keats, to who he was and, and what he did in his life. And I think perhaps part of the confusion actually starts with the lines which I don't think in any way are Keatsian that were, were ordered and written by, by his friends who on his deathbed in the bitterness of his heart at the malicious power of his enemies, desired these words to be engraven on his tombstone. I think the idea that Keats was filled with bitterness and gall at, a, at the destruction of any chance of poetic fame during his lifetime by the, the Vicious Reviewers and the Edinburgh Review and Blackwoods, endured, promoted in large part by the famous stanza in Lord Byron's Don Juan. John Keats was killed off by one critique just as he promised something great, if not intelligible without Greek, contrived to talk about the gods of late, much as they might have been supposed to speak. Poor fellow, his mind was an untoward fate. To strange the mind that very fiery particle should let itself be snuffed out by an article. And it's that strange combination of an article, almost a, a pun, that Byron thinks that just one bad review was enough to destroy Keats, when in fact, of course, he was slaughtered by a whole variety of critics, but that somehow that he let himself be killed by, by, by negative notices, when I think probably tuberculosis did the job just fine on its own. But there is also a sort of grudging respect, I think, in, in those lines from Byron, um, although his respect never really reached more than grudging. And I think what the Keats's headstone engages with in a rather curious and ent almost entertaining way is that any attempt at literary immortality risks falling at the first hurdle as the very notion of immortality rather suggests it's a, a long game perhaps the longest game one could even imagine but the irony being that the last one now may later be first as I'm sure that Bob Dylan never quite got round to saying and I think it's a rather vexed question but quite how much thoughts of literary immortality would have comforted Keats in the agonies of uh, tuberculosis uh, as, he, as he lay dying in the house in Piazza di Spagna I think he's rather up for debate um, I often think of Woody Allen's one-liner I don't want to achieve immortality with my art I want to achieve it by not dying would probably have uh, rang, a, rung a bell with him in those in those final wretched weeks. His early death at a, a young age before he had reached 
any even the promise of, of fulfilling his potential, before he'd had any, any real fun, and before he'd got any of the things that he rather deserved, a, a wife, a time with his friends, and real space to grow as, as an artist. I think tempts us to, to place him alongside other trailblazers who, who, who blaze brightly, but shortly. Chatterton is, is an obvious example, but perhaps one that's also slightly deceiving. I don't think that Keats's investment in him offers a clue about a, or, a, or a foreshadowing of, of his own early demise. Peter Ackroyd, in his uh, more recent documentary about the romantics, was tempted to compare Keats uh, partly to an ambulance siren, perhaps, but um, to troubled rock stars like Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix and Kurt Cobain, who famously all died at 27, which rather blows that out of the water as Keats was at least a, a couple of years years younger. But I, I don't think there was a particular death wish to be sort of extracted from, from, Keats, from Keats's work. I think he was, as Bernard Shaw says, too cheerful, too, too genial. He wore his genius too, too lightly. I know people are often tempted to read this stanza from Ode to a Nightingale and uh, to, to, to see a, a coded desire for, for oblivion, as I think Larkin called it. Darkling I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names and many amused rhyme, to take into the air my quiet breath. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such ecstasy. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. But what kind of desire for oblivion is this? It seems incredibly couched and even slightly cowardly, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death. Many a time doesn't suggest this is a, a constant desire. Half in love isn't exactly any more than 50%. And the, the death that Keats is imagining is not a, a tortured uh, end like San Sebastian, as, as Wilde often pictured, but, but an easeful one, going quietly in your sleep, perhaps with your loved ones around you. And easeful also hopes, holds the idea not of just of, of ease, uh, rapidity, but I think also the, of it, it hints at its opposite of diseaseful, which of course Keats was Keats's um, unfortunate fate. Easeful is picked up by by to cease upon the midnight with no pain, and again Keats rather insists, "I don't want an agonised death. I want to go quietly at this moment of supreme engagement with with the nightingale." And I think it's actually one of those moments which is Keats expressing that that sort of feeling we all have. I think that we've had to have the best day of of our life, this supreme moment. It doesn't really get any better than this. And if, if I were to die now, I would die a happy man. Um, as the child comes uh, around uh, weeping, which I quite know how he feels. Um, so there are moments here um, 